listening to The New Disruptors, a podcast that holds up the future as a bright, shiny ball you can reach for. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, the editor and publisher of The Magazine. Just a note, The New Disruptors has a new home at newdisrupt.org, where you can listen to episodes, download them, leave comments, and get in touch. That's newdisrupt.org. Corey Sika is one of the folks behind The All, a site that's devoted to new writing and to events of the day. Corey was an editor at Gawker twice. He's worked at New York Observer and Radar, and he's just released, just a few days before we recorded this podcast, an entirely true and reported novel that has the, let's say, air of fiction, but everything in it is true. It's called Very Recent History, an entirely factual account of a year, circa AD 2009, in a large city. Welcome to the podcast, Corey. Wow. Hi. That was such a bio. It's, I believe it's entirely true, my account of me. <laughs> Made me sound like an adult, almost. I, uh, I don't. Growing up, the hard part is you start to acquire labels and history and people tell you, you're like, did I do? I don't remember doing all of that. Did I really do all of that? I, I don't remember anything. I, yeah, the funny thing about having a book is you suddenly have a publicist and the publicist keeps asking for like longer and longer <laughs> biography from you. And you're like, I don't know. I just didn't. I went to the store once. But you're a writer, and I mean that's the thing is like it, your your through line is you're a writer, and you've written for years and years, and and you've accumulated both as a freelancer and then in staff jobs all these sort of credits and articles, and it piles up. And so, probably from your standpoint, you've got a body of work you sort of remember writing. And people want to put a label on. Where did you do this? Why did you do this? Where did this come from? I mean, the Gawker thing is, you know, you started at Gawker. Uh, you're the second editor there. And uh, it was back when Nick Denton was starting his empire. You know, they it started with uh, Gizmodo, a gadget site, and then started to, you know, grow exponentially from there. But those were the early days. And people were very dubious at the time about, I think, you know, the utility of blogs still, whether they could make money, whether the, there was any kind of reporting that could be interesting on them. Did you face a challenge from that side or were you just working so hard you didn't care what the outside world was thinking about what you were trying to do? You know, it's funny that I like thinking back on that time. The uh, When Elizabeth Spires started the site with Nick Denton, people were very angry. There's actually a very instructive meta-filter thread on Gawker's mm. launch day, which is always a good one to revisit. <laughs> it's a... Uh, but people were appalled, largely. Uh, they were like, this is sarcastic. This is fluffy. This is pointless. And, you know, and also Gawker had um, fake Corcoran ads on it. Oh, so it was running display advertising, but it wasn't even real. Gawker didn't make a dime for years, I don't think. Mm -hmm. uh, and it didn't pay any either. I mean, he hired me for $24,000 a year. In, in, in New York. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> so you were, you, you were paying him to work there, essentially. You know, it was like my first writing job. I was like 30 and I'd never written anything. So I was like, sure, if good, like works for me. Well, Jason Calacanis, who started, uh, what was his network? It was, uh, well, his was uh, Gizmodo was, I think, the core thing there and then went on to be that network of blogs that uh, AOL wound up buying. And um, Jason was talking about, even recently wrote something that rankled a lot of people. And he's like, look, just start a blog and start writing and just write and write and write and write and then get picked up and work poorly and get, you know, just be scrappy and write and write and write and write. And while I think writers should all be paid, there's also something to be said for just being in a position where you have to write. It seems like that's where you're at in Gawker. You had to be producing like crazy in those days. Yeah, uh, not too, but I mean, close to it. I mean, I, it was definitely, I don't, you know, it's funny because I could never conceive of running a website with more than one person mm. back then, mm -hmm. which is such a funny thing. Like in my mind, websites were, were a person, they were a personality. Uh, and now I can't conceive of websites with just one person. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Jason Calacanis and Nick really got into it because they were both building weblog companies. And there was, if people don't remember, much competition or sort of fake competition between Engadget and Gizmodo, uh, which was a very, a very pointless rivalry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, there was a small – everyone thought there was a small pie. And there was a small pie to begin with because uh, there wasn't very – well, as you say, there was no advertising that was worth anything. I mean the, the gadget sites were powering this because electronics companies were willing to pour money into those – Mm -hmm. At least to some extent, but it was this seemed to be this very you know, is there enough money to sustain the level of staff and technology necessary to keep all these things going? But the pie got bigger and bigger. The uh, the internet pie uh, exponentially got larger. Uh, that's correct. I think what we've seen, 
And I think I'm thinking about this a lot and I, and I don't know if there really is data there, but I think what we're seeing is that you can make a new site become enormous. You can make a verge, you can make a Buzzfeed and it doesn't, it's not, it doesn't take away readers necessarily from anyone. Except maybe print, which is, that's the, I mean, that's the, I guess that's the question is where, where do readers come from? Attention's a scarce commodity. So are we, are we taking readers from print, which is, you know, if print is dying, that might be okay. We're the new place for people to read. So perhaps <laughs> not only it's a good thing, but it's that, it's that shift of like, where, where did people spend their time before? Are we removing TV time where people watch so much TV in America? Can we take a little bit of that away? Are we taking away from, you know, newspaper, magazine reading? Or people reading, I mean, because were they sleeping and now they're not sleeping? I don't know. I feel like I'm not sleeping. Yes, yeah, so <laughs> well, you're, you're in New York. Nobody sleeps in New York. People in New York sleep like an average of five hours a night or something. And you, I don't, I don't know how you do it, but you know, it's actually very bad for your complexion. The um, and I don't believe in that. I believe we actually very strongly believe in. Um, not in the Silicon Valley sense of healthy lifestyle. You know, we don't believe in bringing in lunch here, but uh, you know, we do believe in knocking off at the end of the day. We actually don't, we actually at work, we sort of don't, we don't, we'll often not answer emails on weekends, that kind of thing. You know what I mean? So uh, it's not, it's not gone too crazy here in New York. That's just what I wanted to assure you. It's not, well, thank God. Thank God you're sleeping sometime. Well, you don't have to be sleeping. You're just not working. That's the point all the time. uh, And so the question is, what are we stealing attention from? Yeah. And I don't, I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure anyone knows. I don't. Yeah, I mean, because you read the I read the surveys and the studies, and I guess that's the that I think that was the question. So ten years ago, newspapers were starting to collapse, and we knew we were we were stealing attention from newspapers because newspapers were founded on advertising, especially classified ads were like the highest margin thing, but display ads and paper got expensive, the economy went crazy, people were reading more online, people's attention shifts, subscriptions dropped, the whole thing starts to implode. But now, a decade later. Um, you know, we've had, you've got this run now where between, um, between working at Gawker, at Radar and the Observer and New York Observer, and then also your freelance work, like you've seen this shift. What's changed for you in terms of maybe not the, not in the advertising side, obviously, we're on the editorial side mostly. Um, what's changed for you in terms of what kinds of things you get to write now that 10 years ago or eight years ago would have seemed ridiculous and now is kind of something you can just work on and post? Oh, that's interesting. Um, definitely, uh, my interactions with publishers changed. So when I, I, you know, one of my first jobs after Gawker won, um, like I was on contract at the Times writing arts listings, and they paid me a thousand dollars a week to write, you know, uh, two sentences each about twelve events a week. I mean, it was hard work, and it went through several rounds of edits, but. That doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, and magazines used to just throw work at you. Like they were, they were desperate for people to cover things, and uh, you know, these magazines would just come calling. Uh, Rolling Stone paid me for three stories that they never bothered to publish. That sort of thing happened all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that fell off a cliff very hard in about two thousand and eight. Right. Yeah, because we were, we were sort of building up. It seemed like there might be a little bit of a renaissance after the dot-com crash because I was getting like $2 a word or more sometimes for writing in like 2001. And then it was like, you know, change scrape from the bottom of the couch cushions in 2002. But it, I was watching it build up a bit as a freelancer. And then, right, this collapse happens again and you have another giant dump in publications, subscriptions. Yes. So that's, of course, exactly the time that you founded The All, right? <laughs> because, But was that partly in reaction to the fact that outlets were, were drying up or they were paying less? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, a lot of it was just that we had literally nothing to do. Mm. I, I, I had no work. I, I uh, Yeah, I, I, I had nothing to do with my time. <laughs> so it was sort of a question of... It wasn't so intentional as to say like, oh, well, we're going to make a place for people to publish. Uh, It was more like, Mm -hmm. let's give ourselves jobs because no one else is going to. Well, which is a fascinating thing, though. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't know how entrepreneurial you were before then. You're a younger man than I am. so I, I, don't, I don't think I am, actually. Well, I'm 45. You don't have to reveal your own age. I'm but. almost 42. Oh, my gosh. Well, you're, then you have, you have more energy than I – well, I guess more energy than I have now. But, the, uh, but, <laughs> but I, thinking about the scope of that then is, um, is you know, you've worked for freelancing as a kind of entrepreneurial shit, but you're still beholden to editors. Starting something up seems like a distinct change in your career from, you know, the several years of Gawker, these other publications. 
applications the other writing you're doing. But as you say, like you had nothing to do. How did you what, – what kind of nut did you crack to get into this? Was there a technical one where you said we need a system to make this work? Was it a structural one? What did you and Alex knock your heads together to figure out? You know, we spent about we spent a number of months sort of scheming and talking to people. And it was funny because a number of people had ideas to start publications then. Uh, we talked to a bunch of people wanted to do a similar thing. We kept talking to other people and we eventually sort of disregarded them all <laughs> for better or for worse. <laughs> the uh, and, we, and we also had a business plan. We also talked to people about investment pretty early on. But now even back then, which was pretty recently, four and a half years ago, five years ago, no one was interested in the content business. Mm -hmm. They literally, I mean, people wouldn't even return my emails. And I was like, well, fine, you know, that's great. We'll, uh, we'll, so we decided to soldier on without investment and without anyone else. So getting into it, there wasn't, there's really no barrier to starting a publication, uh, sort of. Time and energy, uh, something else, too, that I can't quite put my finger on. Well, the technology wasn't as daunting in 2009 to you, perhaps? I mean, I know that that was I've, – I've heard this a, a number of times from people. I mean, I've gone through it myself with with running servers and hosting and, and so forth. But in 2009, just the cost of it, maybe – was that a barrier? If you had thought about it earlier, you'd start thinking about hosting, co-location, server management, technical staff, software development. Did that – feel when you're making this plan that that was a, a lower barrier to you? Yeah, we had some plans for technology that we really wanted to execute. Hilariously, uh, one of them was pretty much a kind of better version of Kinja, which is Nick Denton's community contribution scheme. Oh, yeah. K uh, Kinja is, uh, is that, that's kind of, it's like a reputation, a little bit of a reputation system to try to improve on terrible commenting on blogs. Yeah, I think that's, I, that's a pretty good summary. It's also, uh, it's also essentially on one level, also basically community contributorship a la BuzzFeed. Oh, too. I see. So you get, so people bubble up from that. I think having some people, well, I know, isn't that, that's one of the things that's supposed to happen, I guess supposed to is a weird word, but you know, that, that's the, the idea is that if there are good writers out there who don't currently have the right inroads into becoming professional in some way or getting published regularly that systems like Kinja or, or the way in which Huffington Post or BuzzFeed or some of the other sites can encourage, I don't know what it's like. It's, a, I would say vernacular or like grassroots, like people can contribute without any formal qualifications. And it's kind of this other thing. And sometimes you get horrible things in those posts, <laughs> but sometimes there's gems. And th some of those people I know have gone on to get staff jobs at places. No, that's right. That's absolutely true. Uh, and that's actually a useful component, I think. So in a way, it is very reputational. In a way, it's free content. But in a way, it's also community. I'm very torn about it. I think it's a lot of different things. It has a lot of different actions. What we were most interested in was sort of the community aspect of it. It's sort of what I think is important about websites and publications in general is uh, a feeling of belonging that people have about them. Mm -hmm. And we kind of thought that was one way to foster belonging. But so with a, with no funding, uh, and there were only there were three of us actually. Uh, I tell people that you don't start an editorial publication without a business person. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you just can't. This is you won't exist. And so, when all these publications have come to me and say, like, "How do we do this? How do we do this?" I say, "Go find someone who's worked in business, and they don't do anything else. They just do business, even though you have no business yet." So we wouldn't be here without that for sure. Who, who is your? And, do you have the same business person now as in two thousand nine? No, our co-founder, uh, David Cho, left for Grantland when Grantland started. Oh, also another wonderful – I mean that's – Grantland is fascinating to me because it was – you know, it was – I don't know. It's not like a – it's not a, a vanity project, but it was really a brainchild of one person. It's being funded by ESPN, so they've got deep pockets, just like, you know, The Verge is funded and so forth. But I think they've done great things there. I think they've used their money really well to tell great stories. So I can, I can see the appeal there too. Yeah, it's been interesting. Um, Grantland will live as long as Bill Simmons wants it, which is good. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I guess that is. I mean, that's what you say. It's not a pet project because it's not – I think of pet projects as awful. <laughs> it's somebody's <laughs> vision and you're like, all right, they gave him that thing and no one cares. They're like, but no, what they're doing there, it's really – it's neat. And now – so John Shankman is your is your current publisher and he and that's that's his job is he's out there handling all your business matters and advertising and, and all – 
the stuff that you would probably rather not do and, ha- and don't want to acquire the expertise to do. That's right. I find a lot of it very interesting. I'm not a salesperson. I've had sales jobs before, actually, uh, and I don't – it's not really – my skill set. We also have a new uh, a head of technology, finally, who's great, who actually came over from uh, Vox Media, which publishes The Verge. Mm-hmm. That's great. So, so it's really a core. You've got a small core. There's four of you then. Is that right? Is that the, the f- There's all told, there's probably about 15 of us oh, 15. Uh, across the network. Yeah. Oh, that's great. You know, it's funny. I know it's, it's hard to tell the scale of it because a lot of the, the contributors, you have a lot of freelance people contributing. I think you're modest on your site. I had no idea you had 15 people involved. Yeah. In this. With there's uh, f- four sites uh, and across, uh, yeah, the, across the whole thing. That's probably about right. It's, it, we're hiring a little bit too right now. It's, it's very, very sparse and very, very lean yeah, comparatively yeah. to uh, the real the real world. <laughs> well, I should back up a step and say, describe the all to, to our listeners who may not be aware of this wonderful publication spelled A-W-L, link in the show notes. <laughs> what is the all, what was your purpose in founding it besides having a place to write, but what do you want it to be? So, well, they all sort of became what it was. So we, you know, we started this publication ourselves. We uh, were sort of just... Uh, hanging out, doing our thing online, basically. And what happened was our our scheme was always that we would hire younger reporters and have them kind of cover things. But what happened was that, and we're we're dumb not to have recognized this early, but it does play into the recession and what was happening then, was that people had nowhere to write. Yeah. So there was just this giant hole in the the system of of, of the writing world. And so people just kind of barged in, which was really lovely of them. Uh, and we sort of codified that process. Eventually we hired a features editor to work with freelance writers. Um, when we started making money, we began paying immediately those writers. Uh, and that sort of became a, a really integral part of the site, actually. This is kind of the trend, right? Is that long form? I mean, you, so you didn't start with the intent of long form. You started with the intent of being more Newsy, but you're moving into this medium or even longer form journalism or journalism or nonfiction writing, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And, and along the way, uh, we became a little more magazine-y recent, uh, over the last maybe year and a half and a little less news engaged maybe. And I think we're going to skew back a little bit towards news, which is a, and I don't mean that, uh, what, what sort of happened on the internet in the last couple of years, which you've noticed is that. Every publication has a sort of mill of writers who are forced to produce a take on the issues of the day. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we're definitely not going to be doing that, I promise. <laughs> Some of that's disappeared, though, because mm. as we say, like, atten- I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going like, to repeat this, but it's like attention is a scarce commodity. I always say that because if you have a thousand takes on the issue of the day, you're splitting that up so fine. And we have a power law curve. So somebody's going to get, you know, five sites are going to get 90% of the traffic and 20 are going to get 8% of the rest. And then two percent split among the rest, so you can't sustain it except by not sleeping and not making money. And those sites have started to—I feel—it's faded away. Like you know, the gadget sites are a great sub-example. Mm, we were talking yes. earlier about Gizmodo begat and Gadget, which begat you know Gidget, which is now owned by GDGT, all involving Pete Rojas, which is now GDGT is owned by. Whatever AOL division runs that now, right? And yeah. uh, I can't, you know, can't keep track of that. But there's there a million gadget sites for a while, and there was so much money being poured in by advertisers. There was so much interest in trying to capture this early adopter segment that was reading these blogs. There was all this excitement. There was this uh, incredible exhausting focus on every new thing that showed up in a secondhand store in South Korea. We get an article, right? (laughs) And I feel like the pace of that turned down. I see fewer gadget sites and they have less attention, a lot of focus on phones, but sort of the every gadget thing, there's a few places that do it and the noise level went way, way down. You know, you're talking about what it all became. I thought about that with The Verge too, where it started seeming like it was going to be a more highfalutin gadget site and it's evolved into something very different with reviews and deep reviews and video, but then also long form features that are much more like the New Yorker than anything that was appearing on blogs a few years ago. And it seems like you've gone the same, in the same direction a bit. That's right. We all, we started publishing pretty long stuff early on and we found, I mean, we just found that people really wanted it. I just think that they were getting squeezed so much by other publications that were 
you know, compulsively not allowing that kind of content for some reason, which was just really weird. Um, so, oh, you mean you're, you're hearing, but you mean you're hearing that writers were saying, I can't get this piece that's 4,000 word pu- words published anywhere. Oh yeah, for sure. Mm. Or 2000 words. Oh my, gosh. my God. Okay. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, you know, there's just the, the the actual market for people executing longer stuff was actually would slowed to almost a complete halt. There were, you know, a few, you know, old school magazines that were still doing it from their stable of very well established and well paid, you know, old white men, basically. Uh, and um, there and that was about it. So it got it really shrunk, which was really funny. Tracy uh, Kidder is an old white man, out. but he's a great old. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> but, definitely. I know it's funny, but no, you're right. It's that it's that state is that there were very few slots for this kind of thing, and they were totally full. It was like professorships. Yes, that's actually a good point. Yes, and it was literally like, uh, and I feel like there was this thing where writers were like, I have to break into that system and become a contributor, at Esquire, and I feel that although there's still some of that, it's just not quite so glorious anymore maybe yeah that the well i mean right you still might aspire to get into the new yorker but i've talked about to some people who've done freelance uh for them and they love being in the new yorker but the pay isn't fantastic relative to the time i think the pay is actually good but not relative to your time you have to do to it to achieve a new yorker feature if you're staff i think it's different i think the pay is fairly reasonable but getting to be staff in the new yorker is a pretty rarefied rarefied thing too so the all your goal was always to pay writers. How has that evolved from the start? Did you pay people a little bit initially, if I remember right? But but you've been able to, um, you know, with the help of having full time person who's uh, uh, handling the publishing details. I'm always curious about how that evolves. Did you have like a rate you set initially, or or some sharing, and then that's changed, or what's the mix? Uh, there's a couple things about this. Uh, first, with freelancers, what we've sort of done is. From early on, we sort of assess how much money we make, basically. <laughs> like, we sort of assess what our gross and our, and our net is right around now. And we, sort of, uh, and we sort of carve out a percentage that we then divvy up among the writers. And that sort of works out to a rate that is actually – it's actually um, – say right now we pay about seven or eight times what we paid even a year and a half ago. Oh, that's good. Well, that's that's an incredible. Yeah, increase. it's getting closer. It's getting closer to what's okay now. <laughs> there's many. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I, I would I would pay everyone seven hundred dollars for everything if I could. Yeah, and yeah. That would be that'd be lovely. Uh, that's not going to happen immediately. You know, it's also there's other shortcomings here though, which is I mean I'm the one currently keeping track of freelancers and stories. And I, I, you know, I need to sit down for two days and write a bunch of checks from the last four months, Mm -hmm. which is really bad. So there's, you know, there's sort of like a little bit of log jam in in the system when you have a very lean company, which is unfortunate. (laughs) But the good news is that the freelance rate here has gone up and we're happy about that. And so you've seen, I mean, that's, so that's a wonderful sign to be able to, to do that. And you've seen a good growth in, in traffic. And I know there's that, I'm going to say this word and, and don't vomit, mm. please. The word engagement, you know, but I don't know if there's a term for it that's better. I hear that and I kind of go, uh, so markety, but it's like the, what I know from the advertisers and sponsorship side, they want to know that people coming to your site to read editorial stuff will engage with the brand. So that they're measurable, quantitative, you know, they can come out with numbers at the end of the day that say this, you know, the all actually gets a much better response. The readers are more engaged. They do stuff. They click through. They may not even buy something, but they sign up for the newsletter. Does, has that changed over time or is it, has it been a more of a page view growth that's brought the benefits with it? Because I know page views aren't the be-all, end-all either, obviously. Um, yeah. So one thing I've noticed recently – so we, we, we were lucky that we got into advertising networks essentially early on uh, through the intervention of like a very few – kindly people in that world. I mean, you <laughs> yes. know what I mean? Basically yeah, yeah. some guys were like, Hey, this place is kind of cool. Let's like, let's try them out. Even though they're tiny compared to whoever, uh, back then. And what they did see as a value in a business side was that not that even just, just that some people were super engaged that, you know, 15% of readers were coming a hundred times or more a month, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also just that also that we were serving an audience that is, 
fairly attractive. And I and I, it's fairly attractive editorially and fairly edit- attractive business-wise too. They appreciate your audience appreciates what your writers are writing, but they also do stuff. They also act yeah. on stuff. No, that's right. These are people who read and buy books. These mm-hmm. are people who go to movies. These are people who live in cities and buy cars and things like that. And who are youngish, but not super young, and, and who are all very good looking. Yes, all of all readers are handsome <laughs> and beautiful. This is absolutely what's true. Interesting, what's interesting to me too, though, is so we had like a record traffic month last month, um, which was good. But it's an interesting thing that growth. So you'll you'll uh, I mean one of the words they use in, in the web business is conversion, right? And so you kind of want to look at if, with your business. Well, what's a what's a conversion for you? And I and for me. Uh, a conversion is sort of um, uh, expressing an idea of membership. It's mm. sort of jo- it's sort of joining. Like it's like, oh, this is a place I would like to be. We don't do a great job with that, and there's technological reasons and other reasons why we don't, which we're working to fix. But what I've noticed when we've had big traffic months is that. Uh, I mean, is that uh, percentage-wise engagement does go down because these are new right. readers and these aren't all people we're converting into members, for lack of a better word. Well, I wonder some about, of them are. Well, I wonder but, about that. Know. I want to talk about your network because that's I mean, you were talking about community earlier and want to be able to tie into that. And that's that right. The the engagement thing is uh, from the editorial side. I think of engagement as a has a very positive term because you kind mm-hmm. of control the relationship with the reader and the reader can participate or not. Is is Clearly, you'd like to have, I mean, you know, A, you're talking about people who come back again and again, you know, the percentage that are that are repeat visitors, but B, you want to give something sticky to people. So when they come in the first time, they have a sense that there's a reason to come back again and again and again. That's right. And I don't know that we actually do that that well, (laughs) (laughs) which is something we talk about a lot. So, you know, we, you know, we're, 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 we're thinking about that stuff. Um, so and the the other news. So when you brought up the network, the um, the other way we're, we work a little differently is that we're a super horizontal company. I guess you could yes. say. So what we do with websites is that we go into business with their editorial operator. So they are actually uh, co-owners of those sites. Wait. So you have to explain that to me again. So you've got. I'll, let me. I'll back up for for listen, sure. for listeners. You can find this on the about page of the all. Uh, there, <laughs> so there's Split Cider comedy website, Hairpin, a site geared towards women, as it's described. The Wire Cutter, run by my good friend Brian Lamb. Well, I'll call him my good friend. Mm-hmm. He's a great guy. Consumer Electronics blog and uh, the Billfold Personal Finance blog. So you got these four mm-hmm. sites. What is the business? I was having actually, I was having an argument, very polite, with a friend the other day who was trying to explain who owned what, and I said, I don't think we know that. So explain <laughs> what is the business relationship here between your various sites. The easy one is that the wire cutter has been spun off privately to Brian, and, and we're, we do advertising services and friendly stuff with him. But that's that's all Brian now. Which is but he spun off. So did you help um, incubate it and, and give him resources? Or yeah, I we see. sort okay. of we helped him into the we we helped midwife him basically. And Brian's a big fella; he can run his own company his own way, and that works out really well for him. I think it, it was a good it was a good time. It was a good experience. But he got big. I mean, I just say he got big, but it's uh he's got a lot of traffic. I mean, I think. A sidebar for a second, which is Brian is like mm-hmm. Brian and um, uh, is one of the examples I always give and Pete Rojas uh, as well. Uh, I think maybe a little lesser on this example is that the gadget blog intensity is and if you probably had this at Gawker too, like the early blogs where there was this, especially gadget ones, people were sort of chewed up and spit out because there was so much work. And like when Brian launched Wirecutter – with you all, I was like, uh, with uh, sorry, with you all. No, that's not that's not <laughs> either a, way. Not to be a joke about the all, but it was. Uh, I was stunned by it at one level because it was so quiet mm-hmm. and calm. And it said, "These are the best," and it's not going to change all the time. We're not going to throw stuff at you. And I loved that calm. The same thing, you know, Gadget GTGT was that kind of thing. You see a lot of sites that are like. We are not going to throw the river at you. And, and you were talking about that too, even the all shifting from maybe smaller and faster and newsier to longer stuff. It feels like we're all trying to follow, you know, and I see this with my both freelance writing and publications I, I work with is that we're all trying to move to this maybe not a slower pace, but we know that there's money to be found in the stuff that we'd like to do, which is often longer form and more reflective, even if it's the best of you know, 17 inch television sets, it's still there. So, but so has that shaken out with the, 
I'm sorry. So I actually interrupted you in the middle of the explanation. So, so Wirecutter <laughs> has popped. You incubated that. The other three sites. What's the relationship with with them and the all? Are they part of your? Are they part of your company? Well, it's great. Uh, yes, and it's crazy that um, uh, that, that uh, it took Brian Lamb, you know, until recently to show the internet that slow publishing existed and was viable and genius, actually. Mm-hmm. Which I think people are cottoning onto, and um, I think there'll be more and more of it, which is good. I love it. Well, the river drowns people. That's, I mean, I sort of, I'm being, you know, facile, but it's, it's, uh, there's too much, you know, we've had this conversation. I don't know if I've had it on the podcast about completism. Have you, Mm. have you gone through the, you must have gone through this too, is that issue of like releasing a quantum, like, uh, um, you know, with what I do, the magazine, we do an issue every two weeks and we have five articles and it's this very defined thing. And that was partially when Marco Armit founded it, it was partially Mm -hmm. to be, um, from his experience with Instapaper to be an alternative to the, the river of content, the flood that, that some people get uh, drowned in, basically. Absolutely. You know, how many people do you know have stack of New Yorkers in their house? Right. That's why the magazine was so smart. I mean, it was like, great. Like, here's this. Here's this. We're doing this. <laughs> this is all we're doing. You know what I mean? It's a discrete Here's unit. this, not that. Unit. Here's this. Yeah. Right. But no, but that, and I don't, and it's not, a, and it also wasn't a critique because there's room. There are a huge right. number of readers of both kinds, but I feel like the readers who wanted a lump of something that they could actually get through and finish, mm-hmm. that that group really gets drowned in a lot of the approach of the net. And I think some of the slow, when, like, like the wire cutter is a great example, is it's for a completist because you say, just tell me what the best thing is. And I'm going to go and read right. that and I'll know that they spent an incredible amount of time that I don't have to see to come up with the best thing. And they didn't write 400 blog entries about their process of coming up with this best of list. (laughs) Right. And, you know, kind of what I want is that I wish that there were more, I guess I wish there was a little more quiet, right? Mm -hmm. Don't you wish that? (laughs) I do. Well, do you have, are you a Twitter reader or are you a Twitter browser? Ooh, that's a really good question. It's a completist question too. I think. Well, do you, do you have stacks of do you have stacks of New Yorkers yeah. and economists in your uh, in your house or apartment? That's the other question. Ye- I have stacks of everything <laughs> in my apartment. I know the answer. No, the, but that's that. Like, I have friends who are Twitter readers, and they only follow a hundred plus people because that's mm. and they get mad at me because I tweet a ridiculous amount. And then I have, and then I'm a Twitter browser. I just scan through the thing. I'm an RSS browser. Like, I don't. I just dive in and look at the headlines and stuff and I'm out. But, and so I can read a river like boing, boing, or, um, you know, a lot of sites that push out a lot of interesting stuff that I probably want to read every item and I can't, but other people it's paralyzing. I have no problem ignoring things, Mm. which works for me. Uh, but I don't, the one thing I can't handle is prolific tweeters. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I, I probably don't follow you, you because probably, of it. No, it's true. It's it's. Uh, fortunately, I have not ruined any friendships because of it. But, but I do <laughs> I do tweet I do tweet a lot. It is the thing. People filter me, and I think it's okay. My personal mode of expression is over over much. But that is the great benefit of Twitter: is you can filter or unfollow, and I I um, I enjoy that ability. I also enjoy block on Twitter. That's one of Critter's greatest oh, abilities. I, I totally agree. I block people willy-nilly. Yeah, I try not to be nasty about it, but I'm like, people want to have a conversation you don't want to have. And, you know, it's okay to not have that conversation. I think I think Twitter gives us – the one of the nicest things about it is it gives us permission to make a safe space for ourselves. Yes. This is your consumption. It is your it is your internet account. It's uh, You have to own it and you have to c- control its borders very mm-hmm. diligently. But now I want, I'll you know, shift the conversation back to the, like, the idea of community is it seems like that is how do you bring that to a website? Now, you know, I got into it. I got into it a little with you of email and you're the most polite person in the world. You're so polite with my ranting emails at you is uh, you published an article on the all recently about pickup artists and this fellow who had a Kickstarter campaign that I think was ultimately funded. And uh, I'd written something for Boing Boing. Uh, one of your writers wrote something. And um, and I really objected to her tone. And when I got into it in the comments, and you know what was great is the commenters even – you know, they always say, don't read the comments. I'm a comment reader because I think you mm. can learn things about people. But I think your comment system worked admirably. There was a lot of discussion. It was generally polite, sometimes got a little out of line, but not very far. And people participated in kind of keeping it within check. So whatever you're doing there, I think you've developed a system that seems to reward generally good behavior, even in an incredibly contentious and difficult subject. 
Um, for one thing, one thing we do, which is sort of funny, is that we make it incredibly difficult to comment. <laughs> <laughs> which I mean is is I mean is I sort that. of a, a byproduct of of some technological challenges, but is also intentional. Um, a couple of things broke in our commenting system, and we actually refused to repair them because oh. we actually we just didn't want it overrun. Things get really ugly, but they're also but the people who are who have. Uh, ownership over the site in in that way who comment uh, when when they're moved they're actually generally very rational very good people so they're they're willing to get into it and argue but they're not they're not trolls they're not monsters you know they're all they're willing to they're willing to go for it though which is nice well, I, I noticed there was a willingness to discuss even people who thought what I said was was the worst thing in the world well not the worst but they, <laughs> they thought they thought I was a horrible person for having asserted what I thought was a very positive ethical point of view that's my bias they they still got into it with me and they didn't just throw invective at me they were actually willing to discuss and all but one person was really willing to l listen and as I hope I did too and that's I think finding discourse like that is it's very difficult to create the technical environment that fosters the that kind of discourse it's it's keeping people out mostly it's what so that is funny. you're so right though it, 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 I, yeah i hate to say it. you know i've Without also been exclusive though, you're not trying to you're not trying to keep the wrong kind of person out you're trying to keep people out no, who no. don't want to engage in discourse yes and you know i've considered i i actually would prefer a commenting community that was tied to real world identity like so which Unfortunately, mostly means moving entirely to Facebook comments, which I'm not comfortable with either. Yeah, I have that same I have the same reaction. I built a commenting system. Oh yeah, you know what's funny is every time I talk to anyone involved in any aspect of publishing, we wind mm -hmm. up comparing content management systems on this podcast because C oh, sure. CMSs are the bane of our existence, but they're the thing that lets us do what we do too. But uh, I built a comment system for tidbits from uh, this Mac publication from scratch mm. because we had talked for years about adding them and we did not like any of the systems that were available. This is probably three or four years ago. And the weird mm -hmm. thing is we did the same thing. We made you how to send and confirm an email. We made it very, very easy for administrators to remove or block people with single clicks on the page. Mm. And we have an incredibly weird amount of rational discourse. And we're right. like, this is, we have just enough people who visit the site that, you know, we could get 90 comments on a very interesting post and like none on a regular thing. But we rarely we get to a point where we say we have to remove this for anything but issues of spam. You know, when we published the uh, Patricia Lockwood poem the other week, uh, which was about rape. The yes. um, we had a lot of first-time commenters do drive-bys, and I have to say, a large number of them were incredibly stupid, <laughs> yes. um, and are and are not welcome back, yeah. including the ones who were like. Um, They'd never been to the site before and they saw some headlines there and they were like, I can't believe this work of feminism is appearing in this sexist milieu. And I was literally like, get, what? The, get the hell out. <laughs> well, you know, they, like, I was like, I'm sorry, this isn't a safe space. Like this isn't this web. This is a this is actually a big issue yeah. with publications right now about uh, how safe a space it is. And this comes up at women's publications yes. or women geared publications quite a bit. And people we have a hard time knowing what they should be. We're sort of all f slightly more free speechers before we're anything else, but we're not entirely. <laughs> right. So it's complicated. It's very complicated. You're, well, you're willing to publish things that aren't, you're not looking for popularity or consensus when you publish stuff. You have an editorial vision and you publish what you think fits that vision. Yeah. And it's, there's always squishy room at the edges and I don't really know, you know, I, as the person who reads the slush pile right now, I'm literally like, I don't know half the time. Like I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea if this is in our wheelhouse editorially, conceptually, politically, I don't have any idea. So, uh, that's sometimes it's a little squishier than it should be. Maybe. What's your goal in like a really practical standpoint? How much content do you want to push out in a given day or week? Do you have a a sense of words or pieces, or is it just a natural flow of what's coming in or, or being pitched? We have a kind of regular schedule that's going to be disrupted soon. We're actually hiring. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're going to throw it up. <laughs> we're hiring an editor-in-chief for the all, actually, who oh. um, will run the site themselves. The um, So that's going to be very interesting and new. Are you a virtual company or do you have offices right now? Are you all split? We do have offices mm -hmm. as well. We don't always go to them, but they mm -hmm. do exist in Midtown Manhattan. We have meetings there. 
That's exciting. See, I, I get to avoid <laughs> meetings. That's one of my most wonderful, wonderful things now. Well, I was curious because um, you know, I was, uh, we were talking, I think, before the podcast about me, me asserting people never sleep in New York. And you were saying you actually have fostered an environment in which people aren't necessarily working all the time. That the, the goal is that people do turn off the email, they do go home and so forth. So they may not be sleeping, but they're not staying awake on your account. We, uh, yeah, we, uh, we hired a, a, an associate publisher, Michael Mocker away from HuffPost, um, last year, uh, late last year. And, um, he'd never had a job where he could work from home before oh and my. we didn't. And so I, I, we, we don't, we went on a little break over between Christmas and New Year's. And then like, when we came back, I don't think we saw him for like two months. Uh, he went like way, <laughs> he went way overboard. <laughs> he went totally nuts. He was literally like, I haven't left my house in weeks. And he, it's a huge he beard like, and. <laughs> Yeah, he he had to reel it back in, um, but it was his first taste of freedom. Oh my gosh! So he went, uh, it he was went good rogue. for him. Yeah, he went real rug. I was literally like, okay, you, this there will be staff meetings, and you do work here, so you do need to come in sometimes. As long as long as he didn't have the Homer Simpson bird just dipping its beak to hit the button uh, all the time to keep the nuclear power plant going. <laughs> well, you know, I talked to Jason Fried of Thirty Seven Signals uh, that makes Space Camp and Campfire uh, a few several months ago because um, one of the things I was fascinated about in their organization was they figured out how to build. Uh, they don't have a ton of people, but they have a, a fairly decent sized staff. They turn off the lights at five p.m. People work from home. People work all over the world, and then they bring they, and they have some offices, but they bring everyone together a few times a year. Like they'll fly people in everywhere in the world to have like time together to socialize in person, to work in person as this like intense, immersive like let's all get in sync as a company again. Then they all fly off and they do their own thing mm. and they work remotely. And I thought such a humane thing to do, but he was adamant. It's like, if you can't get your work done in the work week, then you maybe need to think about what you're doing instead of working harder. And I, I love that as an alternative to the always on, always working Silicon Valley and, um, you know, New York mindset. Yes, I agree with that because the, I feel like the always on, always working thing is tied to uh, investment capital, which is sort of like you're. It, I mean, you're gonna. <laughs> oh, you're, you're gonna, totally right. Wow. Right. You're gonna burn through that. You're gonna spend it oh all. So, God. and you know what? You got, and you also have to make good with your investors. And it's like if you look at companies like Refinery Twenty Nine, actually, is a really good example. It took them the first five years without investment to sort of mosey along and become what they were supposed to be. But they didn't. If they and if they had worked night and day for those five years, getting to where they were supposed to be, they would be husks and burnt out shells yeah. of a human being. Yeah. So you can't do it. Companies take time, actually, as I think what we're learning. Yeah, and you've been you've had this time to find your voice, but you've ramped up slowly. Uh, that I think is the most interesting thing about the specific place in time we're at now is because you can. I mean, this is like I constantly pricing servers and things. Like I have various virtual mm. uh, virtual private servers and so forth. I use for different things I'm doing. And the price keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. It's like, yes. I can get two terabytes of data transfer a month for $20 a month with a server, virtual server that is better than something I paid $3,000 for a, a few years ago when I used to own v physical servers. And that's ridiculous. I mean, paying for $3,000 and paying hundreds of dollars a month for co-location fees, paying bandwidth fees on top of it. That was my reality, you know, a few years ago. Right. Now it's 20 bucks a month. So you had the time and freedom in, from 2009 to now to not be paying this giant bill while you sorted it out and were doing other kinds of work as this occupied more of your time. Or that's, that's my view from the outside of what you've been going through. <sighs> yeah. It's, well, it's, you know, I'm really looking forward to the next transition. I'm looking mm -hmm. forward when we have this editor-in-chief running the site and then we have to go and make up jobs for ourselves. <laughs> you're getting bumped up to the corner office. Um, or something. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're, you're going to be a higher level. You'll have a higher level role now because you'll have someone taking on some of the editorial duties that you've had all along. Yeah. And I think – but I think it will also really spread more horizontal. That person is going to have a lot of agency mm -hmm. to run the site that – like everyone does. So because everyone – Pretty much everyone involved has some ownership on one way or another with the site or the company. Uh, there's also there's upsides and downsides. There's upsides mm -hmm. in that they have this authority, they have this domain, uh, they're invested in what they're doing. The downsides can sort of be uh, working in sync in symphony together. Like, do you know yeah. what I mean? Like in sync. Like we have a, a because we're all. A, very busy, but also have our own wheelhouses. 
I'm not always, we don't always know how to be in sync with kind of making projects happen. And we're getting better at that right now, I've noticed. You know, what's fascinating is there's a company, uh, you know, the company, uh, it's Valve that makes Steam. Uh -huh. they, they have, um, they're run as an anarchy. I, I actually have to interview the folks over there because I'm right. fascinated with this as a business model. Nobody there has any job responsibilities mm -hmm. that are assigned to them. And they produce great and interesting stuff. And it works. They have like a house economist who I've heard interv interviewed who sort of studies wow. them and helps them tweak what they do both, I think, in in the game system they've developed, but also in-house. And what you, what you describe as because of this sort of agency and stake in, in the all as a, a, a organization, it's so counter to what most of, you know, the 20, 20th century was about in work. And you describe this, I'm like, that sounds pretty great. I talked to, you know, like I've talked to a lot of sole proprietors and people doing one and two person shops in this podcast, but I've also talked to people like you where there's 10, 20, 50, 100 people involved. And it is... Interesting that in every case, uh, I know I'm coming at it from what are these people doing that's interesting to the wider world about taking control of finding an audience, but the inner workings wind up all being very similar. That there's so much agency given mm. to staff and so and also often ownership, so that you're all in it together in this cooperative venture. Even if there's a boss and someone makes decisions, but it is a cooperative venture, and you're describing a lot of freedom, even though there's penalty that comes with that freedom too. Yeah, and there is a lot of freedom. I mean, sometimes we don't talk for days, <laughs> but uh, which is sort of nice. Um, but there, there's definitely a downside, and so it's also a company where there's founders, right? So there's definitely a way in which people we we all kind of think we always have a boss, right? So everyone, mm -hmm. so people turn turn to me for these things, and I'm like, I don't frankly care, or I don't <laughs> frankly know, like you know what I mean? Like, knock yourself out, or um, but also founders are often, and I'm finding this more and more about myself is founders are often the source of all the logjam, and my role and my duty now is to get out of the way so things can happen. If everything comes to my desk, which in Alex's desk, which it kind of is, I feel like right now, uh, we, we, we make things stop, not things happen. Oh, interesting. So you're trying to remove yourself from being the log jam and let people have more freedom from a authority that they perceive, but that you're not really trying to enforce. That's about right. Yeah. I mean, in some ways I do want to enforce a little bit of, I do want some approval. I do care very much about many of these things that are being decided, but I want to empower, um, like say Adam wants to make changes to his website, Splitsider. Uh, I want him to work with the head of technology, uh, and make those things happen. And if, I, if they're constantly going to me for my thoughts or especially late in the process, I'm going to make that stop. Mm-hmm. I want input and I want to hang out and like talk about it because I have ideas and I have opinions, but you know what? I'm not, you know, who needs me? You don't want to be the executive. Like, yes, no, you want to be, Ugh, yeah. yeah, well, let's see. That's, it's wonderful, but see, it's wonderful. You can grow a company and make that happen without having to put yourself in a position that you don't want to occupy. And then you hire other people to do the stuff that, you know, the specialty thing is the publisher, the technology chief of technology and so forth. I want to give you a chance to plug your book since, since your book did just come out. And I think there's a wonderful relationship here too. I know the book is not about technology, but it is just out. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I read, a, I read an excerpt of it. Very recent history, an entirely factual account of a year, circa AD 2009 in a large city. You, I can't help but notice that circa 2009 is the year you started the all. So clearly a different point in your life. And I can't help notice that you live in a large city. So the, the, what I've read the background of the book is there's been people who've written about it as if it were a, a fictionalized account because you abstract people's identity or the sort of identity of things like the mayor. You don't use names. And it seems like or, or last names or full formal names. And you're, you've said this is a fully reported book. W tell me about. I mean, how did this book come to being? While well, you're building a company, you're also writing a massive, uh, you know, a massive bit of publishing for a conventional publishing company. That's that's absolutely, you know, it's Harper. They go, their roots go back into the 19th century, and and now the roots go back into Rupert Murdoch, even even more oh, intense. Oh no, <laughs> <laughs> penal colonies. Uh, but so, but so you you're putting. Uh, I, I know it's one place you put a, about a year of your time, but you're also deep into the all. How did you manage that is actually, of course, one question. Did you stay, is, is that where the, uh, the non-sleep time went was towards writing? 
Yeah, that was kind of bad. I'm also very productive, mm-hmm. um, so it's not that bad for me. Um, but it was a little hectic. Um, so, you know, it's an interesting dealing. It's interesting being a cog in someone else's giant company <laughs> as well. It's funny, yeah. right? And, the, yes. and publishing companies are, as you know, are hilariously stodgy. They're very old-fashioned. They don't understand some of the ways I'm behaving around publication date. And I uh, am happy to convince them that I understand more about the internet than they do, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which I'm pretty sure is actually true. (laughs) I'm not an expert in much in this world, but I do feel like I know how the internet works. So the book is, yeah, the book's a weird little animal. Um, It's trotting along. We'll see what people say about it. Now they actually have it in their little hands. I'm I'm also a writer, so I know how I feel about my babies once they're published, and I I you know I'm never sure if they're perfect or not. Are you happy with the book? How it came out? I am largely happy with the book and how it came that's out. That's very good. That's very good. You're pro- that's probably ninety fifth percentile for most writers about something they produce. <laughs> if you're very yeah. happy about it, you're lying. I think that's my reaction to most. There are a few writers like that. They just sit down their machines like Stephen King. But I think most writers, the process is so painful that when you're done, it's however much you love it, you're still you can't, you know it's still being being fairly happy with it. I think is a pretty good state to be in. I think that it's much harder on fiction mm-hmm. writers. I think that that is much more uh, like uh, living in this cage, having a dream of a novel inside yourself, all that jazz. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's much easier for, for us who are reporters or whatever. It's So uh, there's always that control of the narrative thing. So I've described to you some of what people are writing about the novel after it's been out just for a few days. Do you, are you feeling like you've lost control of the of what the book is, I mean, I think I just called it. I called it a novel, right? But it's not per se a novel. I'm even using that term because of uh, of how it's being described. Do you know what? It's so funny. For the last couple of days, I've been meaning to Google the word novel, <laughs> and now right. I'm going to do it. What you know, does it? What does uh, novel? Okay. Mean? Let's let's go with Wikipedia, which whatever. But a novel is a long prose narrative that describes fictional characters and events. Right. Right. Huh. So the fictional rights, I mean, this is, you can, so you have a, written a non-fiction novel. I mean, that's actually, when we talk about long-form journalism, we're almost always talking about non-fiction narrative journalism. You, you, you can't write a non-narrative long-form non-fiction piece because it's unreadable. It's just detail. Um, so whenever you get beyond a few thousand words, I mean, some people are beautiful about doing that in 300 words, 200 words. But whenever you get beyond a thousand or 1,500 words, you have to have a story arc and a sustaining narrative. So the kind of long-form nonfiction that gets written now is got a lot in common with prose narrative. You know, there was a funny piece a while back and I just forgot who wrote it again, even though I just looked it up. Um, (laughs) But they wrote about uh, how it was the highest form of praise for nonfiction is calling it novelistic, which is actually a really silly thing that happens all the time. Uh, But I understand why we, as people feel that way. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we've made reality into art, actually, or whatever, which is like, whatever. But um, it is really a funny thing, though. And it's actually, it's been, it's been very strange. I, I suppose I could have foreseen some of this happening. By the, by the <laughs> choices you made. And, well, you, but you abstracted. I mean, that's actually right, one of the choices that you call, I think it's, you call the mayor is the mayor, right? There's no, you're not saying it's, it's Bloomberg yeah. or whatever. It's just the mayor... You're sort of using uh, abstract terms to represent concrete people. Yeah, it's pretty weird. It's it's a weird little book. I mean, that's oh no, it's definitely weird. So I, I and I also I also think so much of it is concerned with most of the book is like concerned with strange things. Um, there's like a lot. There's like a whole chapter on the Bible at one point. Like you know. So this is your uh, this is your Moby Dick then. In other words, yes. It's it's a very 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 short Moby Dick. Um, I love Moby Dick. Is one of the funniest books you can read if you read it as an adult. When I read it in high school, yes. it was boring, and then I read it in right. my twenties. Like this is hilarious. Why did no one tell me this is parody? I didn't have any idea. Right. So, it's a funny critter. Yeah. It's and it's got you know that chapter on I don't know about how you extract the spermaceti from the whale and all that. And it's, it's all the detail is funny. Everything about that's funny. So being compared to Moby Dick, some people would say, Oh, that's very tendentious. I don't want to be, you know, but in fact, I think it's a comp, I, I would take it as a compliment if a novel of mine or work of mine were, were, were referred to that way. Yeah, um, we should all be so lucky. My God. Of course, then you're recognized after you're dead. So that is the downside. You know, 
I'll take that. <laughs> yeah. We're not we're not going to live forever. Posthumous recognition. Well, let's finish on a, on that positive note, Corey. Is that uh, is we're not going to live forever. You'll be well known after you're dead. And uh, no, I'm sorry, but I think you know, thanks for talking about this whole scope of things. I think uh, um, I keep trying to understand what changes are taking place that let people do things. And it's hard. And we're sort of, I felt we picked apart a lot of the pieces that brought you to be able to make the all into this. And if I, if I think the concluding thing is that your readers are pulling stuff out of you, the readers are helping to define what you're doing, but what the readers want matches closely with what you'd like to be doing. And you've kind of been able to come uh, in the middle to that point, you're seeing increased traffic. You're obviously seeing increased revenue based on, on what you've discussed. So have the have the readers helped define for you um, a way to do what you want to do? That's interesting. I wonder if I've really thought about it like that. I think, you know, the funny thing is the things that people talk about liking are not the things that get the most traffic. Mm. So we're very careful to not use Comments, traffic, revenue, or any other one thing be sort of a decision maker about what we do and what we don't do. Ah, okay. Because not, right? Because you can look at it sort of as a, in a global perspective with all that information. But I think one on one, what? But I will say what readers say instead of what readers put on the internet or readers share or comment on. What readers say when you talk to them one on one is sort of the most useful assessment of what you're doing. That is very interesting. That's you. Know, that see that gets us back to like, what do you look at? Some people don't read the run sites, don't read the comments. Some people don't read their iTunes reviews. Some people try to ignore all but a subset. But taking all these things together as a holistic measure sounds, and, and then listening to the specific feedback that's highly directed. That sounds like a wonderful approach. Um, also, you should always always be hiring because whenever you're hiring, you're seeing a large number of people that are your perfect focus group. <laughs> it's been very it's been a very handy oh that's fascinating yeah very this is handy this process. is the the one problem i have at the magazine and understanding readers is that most of our readers come from uh subscribers come from the app store and which is right. wonderful and apple you know there's there's lots and lots of trade-offs in being in there but the benefit is a mass vast audience you can reach but we find out uh it, over time it's taking a lot to find out exactly what readers think and respond to because we get so it's kind of a big black hole so the wonderful thing about having a home on the web or your primary home there is i think getting that rich level of feedback that you don't have to slavishly pay attention to but you're clearly listening to and seeing the response with some metrics as well yeah the the uh the days of black boxes like uh apple and uh others are It'll probably be end someday, don't you think? I th I think so. It's just Apple has this hegemony on mobile <laughs> communication that, in a way that for yep. publications, I mean, I've been asked a number of times, as Marco was before me, when will there be an Android version of the magazine? Okay. I said, as soon as somebody else forges the way and shows that there's a way to release a magazine publication or periodical publication on Android that gets sufficient subscriptions there to justify the development costs, and I'll be delighted at that point to do it. But that, yes. for whatever reason, a billion Android users are not buying publications and uh, and a lot of iOS users are. So yep. someone's going to crack that nut. I hope Google, I really, and that's actually the funny thing as someone who's characterized as an Apple person as I am, it's like, I want there to be robust competition. I want the hegemony to be broken. I'm sure you as a magazine publisher, a website publisher, you'd love to have it broken because it gives everyone, consumers and producers alike, a better marketplace. Oh Lord, yes. <laughs> It's a very old world problem. It's a very exciting, uh, ancient uh, issue happening in uh, the modern space, which is sort of fun. Yeah, it's well, yes. <laughs> who, who owns the press? And, and um, mm. you know, we're supplying the ink and Amazon or Apple owns the press or Amazon in some cases owns the press and we want to break down the doors. Well, so go visit all of Corey's work, the all the various sister sites and go buy his new book. Very recent history. It's available on, on Amazon. Do they sell books? <laughs> Probably get it there. They for now still still sell books. And yes. uh, your favorite independent bookseller who apparently thought, yes. according to the New York times, independent booksellers are actually doing better with the, the failure of Barnes and Noble or failure of borders and the declining fortunes of Barnes and Noble have led to greater fortunes for independent booksellers. Go find an independent bookseller today. Buy a book at full price. <laughs> Uh, so thank, thanks, Corey, for being on the podcast. Great to have this discussion. Yeah, this was very relaxing. Thank you so much. 
If you'll be in Portland, Oregon on Wednesday, September 18th, 2013, The New Disruptors and The Magazine are having a small shindig with some live interviews, drinks, and mingling. Visit newdisrupt.org slash pdx2013 for details and a link to RSVP a yes or a maybe, or email us at show at newdisrupt.org. The New Disruptors has a new home. Find us at newdisrupt.org. You can find our new podcast feed, leave comments on individual podcasts, or send feedback. We release a new episode every Thursday. Would you like to sponsor this show? We'd be glad to have you. Visit podlexing, P-O-D-L-E-X-I-N-G.com for more details. Our theme music is by Jeff Tolbert, who you'll find at jefftolbert.com, and our audio engineer is Michael Warner. Our podcast audio is hosted by SoundCloud. We are a production of The Magazine, an electronic periodical for curious people with a technical bent. Find out more and read free articles at d-magazine.org. This podcast is licensed under the Creative Commons by NCND 3.0 license. Feel free to distribute it intact and with attribution to us by linking back to our site. We only ask that you don't offer it for sale. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Please join us again next time. Thanks for listening.